You're listening to a podcast from Oasis Church Waterloo. To find out more, visit oasiswaterloo.org. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Great. Thanks, Dean. Very well read. That's the benefit of getting a drama teacher to do your Bible reading, isn't it? Um, hi. Yes, as I said earlier, for any of you that I don't know, um, I'm Nath. Um, I, uh, yeah, we'd mentioned earlier this um, Shane Claiborne event. Now, I know that we're not very good at signing up for things in advance in this place, um, but I would say that so far we've got rid of 150-something tickets for that event. And you will look around you, you'll see that there's not that many more spaces if everybody comes. Now, of those 150-odd people, I think about 10 of them are people from our place. Because, like me, everybody else will just think, oh, we'll just come last minute. So just giving you the heads up that if you do want to come to that event, maybe it's worth signing up sooner rather than later. Um, as Anna said, I'm ending this series that we've been doing on Jesus's Jewish roots. I kicked it off looking at baptism, and then Leanne spoke about Jesus being a rabbi, Steve spoke about Jesus the Messiah, and I kind of touched on that a bit later and talked about what it meant that Jesus was the anointed one. Last week, Dave Parr talked about turning over the tables, and here we are this week, the sixth in the series, looking at the Sermon on the Mount. Now, as Anna said, it's a pretty commonly known bit of the Bible, isn't it? Most of us will have at least heard of a bit about the Sermon on the Mount. It starts in Matthew chapter 5, that bit that Dean just read to us, and it carries on for the whole of that chapter, the whole of chapter 6, and the whole of chapter 7. As it is written in Matthew, it's the longest unbroken monologue from Jesus in any of the Gospels. It's the longest time that Jesus stands up and preaches. It would have taken a long time to get through this. It would have even been longer than some of Steve's sermons. Not all of them, but some of them, I think. However, if you read the book of Luke, um, which is another account of Jesus's life, that has a lot of these stories kind of dotted throughout that book, not just done in one big long bit at the beginning. And the theologians think that Luke's version is probably more historically accurate. It probably was a few different sermons over the course of the time that Jesus was preaching and teaching. But Matthew 
was deliberately writing for a Jewish audience. So his kind of focus, where he was focusing his attention, was a bit different to some of the other gospel writers. And so what he was doing was trying to draw parallels all the time between his account of Jesus' life and what they would call the Hebrew Scriptures, what we know as the Old Testament. So lots of you will know that at the beginning of the Old Testament, Moses comes down from Mount Sinai clutching the law, and he reads the law to the people of Israel from the side of a mountain. So Matthew, in his account of Jesus' life, is trying to draw that parallel between Moses by saying Jesus also stood on the side of a mountain, and he is giving us some new laws, a new way to live. So Jesus stands up on the side of this mountain. And I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that at that moment, everything changes. See, lots of you would have heard about people like the Pharisees, who were a religious group, and they were all about the law. What they cared about more than anything else was keeping the law, making sure they didn't do anything that might be construed as breaking the law. They're the kind of people who wouldn't be much fun at parties. I don't think I could have got on with them. I don't think we'd have been great friends. But people love rules, don't they? It can be easier to follow rules sometimes. It's a bit more kind of black and white. It's clearer what to do. It's easier than trying to make decisions about things. And back then, like today, there were some pretty straightforward ideas about what worked and what didn't work. Do everything you can to be rich and powerful. Make sure you think first about your own happiness. Don't worry about other people. Be independent. Be aggressive. Be somebody. Make a name for yourself. And always make sure you're popular. So here's Jesus. Just before the Sermon on the Mount, just before the bit that Dean read to us, at the end of the fourth chapter of Matthew's Gospel and the beginning of Matthew 5, we read these words. Jesus went throughout Galilee teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and illness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon possessed, those having seizures and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and he sat down. The disciples came to him and he began to teach them. And here is where everything changes. Because he doesn't say, do everything you can to be rich and powerful. He doesn't say, it is imperative that you keep the law of Moses. Whatever you do, don't break the rules. He doesn't say that. He stands up and in Matthew's account, the first thing that he says is what Dean read. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And so on. Imagine listening to that. There's an important translation point here as well before we go any further. In Greek, which is the New Testament language, the language that the New Testament is written in anyway, there are two words which are translated into English as blessed. One of them is eulogeo, which is the kind of word that you would use if you were asking God to bless someone. So just now, when we sent the kids out, 
we read that blessing that we always read every week. And the first line of that says, may God bless you and look after you. If this was in Greek, that would be eulogeo. We're asking for God's blessing on something. But there's another Greek word that's translated as blessing, and it's this, makarios. This is different. Makarios, theologians say, recognizes an existing state of happiness. It affirms that something is already present. And that's the word that's used in the Beatitudes. What does that mean? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This isn't God saying, God please bless those who are poor in spirit because they're having a hard time and they could really do with a bit of your blessing. It's saying that the poor in spirit are already blessed. Theirs will be the kingdom of heaven. The blessing is already yours. You feel like you're meek? You are blessed because you will inherit the earth. Already, just a few verses into this three-chapter-long sermon, Jesus is already flipping the conventional wisdom of the day on its head. And he carries on like that all the way through. And we have to remember that the people listening to this, they were living under Roman occupation. Every day was a struggle. They were living in a really hierarchical structure with huge differences between the rich and the poor, those who had power and those who didn't. Good job he sorted that out now, isn't it? Um, and you'd imagine that the crowd that Jesus was attracting was people on the margins. It was those without power and influence, those who were struggling. It wouldn't have been only people like that, but that would have been the majority of the people that were there. They would have felt poor in spirit. They would have been mourning. They would have felt meek. They would have been hungering and thirsting for righteousness that they weren't seeing. And suddenly a guy stands up and says, you are blessed. God is for you. And it carries on like that. You're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. Turn the other cheek. Hand over your coat. Go the extra mile. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Give to the needy, but don't make a show of it. Don't store up treasures on earth. Don't judge. There is so much in these chapters that we could dig into. What these chapters are, more than anything else, is that they are a radical and revolutionary manifesto for individual and community transformation. And Jesus is calling the people who are listening to join into that. Join in. Get involved. You've lived your life one way. I'm calling you to something different, something better something radical, something life-giving, something life-changing. Because if you do this, if you join in with this, nothing will be the same again. And I think the call that Jesus made to those people sitting on a hillside in Galilee 2,000 years ago is the same call to us today. Be brave. Follow Jesus. You've lived your life one way, but he is calling you to something different, something life-changing and life-giving, something radical. Jesus was turning 
commonly held wisdom on its head. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You have heard it said, but I tell you. And I think this is part of our job today. You have heard it said, but I tell you. You have heard it said that gay people can't come to church and be in relationships. But I tell you, that's a poor understanding of theology. You have heard it said that young people in this area cause trouble. But I have heard it said, I tell you, that if you get to know some of these teenagers, you will know that they are some of the most life-giving people that you could meet. Has anyone read this? Lord of the Flies. It's a book from the 50s. The premise is these young people end up shipwrecked on a desert island and chaos breaks out. Immediately, they realize they can't live together without rules and without laws. There is no civilization. There's no civilized society. And what happens is towards the end of the book, spoiler alert, bad things happen. Now, the interesting thing about this book is that I think this is what we are told, isn't it, about human nature. Everyone says, oh, it's like Lord of the Flies. People who haven't even read the book use it as an example as to what would happen if we took away the rules and we took away the laws. Because humans are bad. Human nature is bad. And if we took away all those things and we just put people on a desert island, bad things would happen. Civilization would break down. But let me tell you a story about an island called Atta. In 1966, so about 15 years after um, Lord of the Flies was first written, there were six boys in a school in Tonga. And they were bored in school, and they thought they'd nip out. And they stole a fishing boat, and they went to get some food. But the problem was that the winds were high, and there was a storm coming, and they were pretty inexperienced on this boat. And suddenly, they got swept up in this storm, far from home, couldn't get back. And they ended up shipwrecked on this island, Atta, far from home. The ship was absolutely ruined. There was absolutely no chance they were going to be able to get back. So they wash up on the shore, six boys, teenagers. They get up, they walk around, and they realize there's no one there. It is completely uninhabited. They have no way of telling people where they are. They have no ship. They can't get back. And because they've bunked off school, no one even knows where they were going. So what happens? Well, Lord of the Flies tells us that it descends into chaos, doesn't it? But actually what happened was that they created structures. They created systems. They created rotors about who would go and get food who would clear up after the food. They built structures so they'd have a bit of cover at night. They created space where they could play games. One of them, from half a coconut shell, some driftwood and some steel wire that they took off the shipwreck, fashioned a guitar, and every morning and evening they would sing and pray together. Once when they were out trying to get food, one of them fell and broke his leg and they constructed a splint for his leg, 
and set it. These boys were on this island for 15 months. And then one day, there was an Australian sailor. He was called Peter Warner. His dad was one of the richest men in Australia. He ran a massive media conglomerate. And Peter Warner had been bred from birth to become the next his dad, to take over this media conglomerate. And he had no interest in it. What he loved was sailing and fishing. And what he'd done is he got a boat, and he was working for his dad at this point, but every option, every opportunity he would get, he'd sneak off onto this boat. And he'd found out that there was something, I think it was lobster or something, near the coast of Tonga. And he, wouldn't, he wasn't allowed to go and fish there. So he was on his way to Tonga to go and meet somebody to say, can I get a fishing license? They turned him down. He came back. And as he came back, he went the wrong way. And he saw in the distance an island that he'd never seen before. And he thought, that's odd. And it must be uninhabited because I've never seen it before. It's not on my map, all this kind of stuff. And as he gets closer, he says to the guys he's on the ship, he says, hey, let's go and have a look at this. And as they get closer, suddenly these six boys can't believe it. They're waving, they're running, they're diving into the sea to try and swim towards him. He goes up to them. They say, we don't really know. We think we've been here for 15 months. We've been trying to count the days. We think it's about 15 months. And they start to tell Peter Warner their story. It turns out that when they'd had a falling out, one of them would be sent to one side of the island and the other one would be sent to the other side. And when they'd calm down, they'd bring them back from the naughty step, basically, isn't it? And then the two who had been arguing would get together and they would reconcile. That's actually how it happened. They looked at the guy who'd broken his leg. He was uh, examined by doctors later on and they couldn't believe what a good job they'd done. The leg had healed perfectly in this makeshift splint. Peter Warner was interviewed a couple of years ago, and he said, I've actually started writing my memoirs, telling this story. He's still in touch with these boys. He's still good friends with one of them. And the first line of his memoir says this, Life has taught me a great deal, including the lesson that you should always look for what is good and positive in people. That, I think, is the reality of humanity. You have heard it said that outside of civilized society, kids would turn on each other. But I tell you, it is not the case. Or how about this one? There's a professor of social psychology in the Netherlands, Tom Postmus, and he asks this question of his students. He says, right, imagine an airplane. You're on an airplane that needs to make an emergency landing, and it breaks into three parts. The cabin fills with smoke, and everybody inside realizes we've got to get out of here. What happens next? He says there are two planets. On planet A... The passengers turn to their neighbors, and they ask if they're okay. Those needing assistance are helped out with the plane first. People are willing to give their lives even for perfect strangers. Okay? That's planet A. And then he says, well, say, let's say the same thing happens on planet B. On planet B, everyone is left to fend for themselves. Panic breaks out. There's pushing and shoving, and children, the elderly, and those who can't walk that well, all get trampled underfoot. Now here's the question. Which planet do we live on? Do we live on planet A, where everybody calmly helps each other out and makes sure that those who need help get off the, the plane first? 
Or do we live on planet B where everyone panics and pushes themselves forward to try and get off? What do you think? Hands up for planet A. Hands up for planet B. No one voted for planet A here. Everybody thinks that we'd go planet B. And Tom Postmas says, he's been asking students this question for years, and he said he's been keeping a track, and 97% of people, 97% of students that he's asked, think we live on planet B. 97% think we live on the planet where everybody pushes themselves forward. And he said he's researched a ton of times where this has actually happened, where this kind of thing actually happens, and guess what? In almost every single case, we live on planet A. Almost every single time that's happened, people have looked out for each other. You have heard it said that everyone's just out for themselves, but I tell you, we care about each other. Most of us really are in it together. Now, the next thing I have to say, obviously, is that we know it isn't as simple as that, don't we? As much as the stats and the science might tell us that in general people do care about each other, it isn't universally true, is it? Like, for example, these newspaper front pages that I saw a picture of this week. If you can't see that because it's too small, it's 24 front pages from the Daily Express all saying we have to ban EU migrants. One in five migrants headed to Britain. Asylum seekers cost one and a half million pounds a day. You are paying to teach migrants math, etc., etc., etc. We all know that not everybody thinks the best of all of humanity. This is Rebecca Solnit. She's a writer and an activist, and she says that media stories like this come from the same source. She says, elite panic comes from powerful people who see all humanity in their own image. Those who have power have it because they've grasped it, because they've stood on people to get ahead of them. And as a result, they think that everybody else acts like that, so they continue to act like that to stay ahead. It's the same attitude, I think, that we see in so many places from water companies dumping sewage in our rivers and then after they've got caught, passing the cost of clearing it up onto bill payers. Or Suella Braverman, our Home Secretary, the person responsible for the laws in this country, trying to use civil servants to help her get out of a speeding fine. Or Karen Chanana, who gave the Conservatives more than £200,000 being investigated over fraud and money laundering. And all of those stories were just on the front page of the BBC yesterday. Elite panic comes from powerful people who see all humanity in their own image. So what do we do about this? What is our response to this? If we genuinely believe that humanity is good, because we hear stories like that island in Tonga, or we hear stories like Planet B. Or stories like the other day when Seren, my daughter, was at the fracture clinic and she went to get a hot chocolate afterwards and there was a nurse at the front of the queue and she'd forgotten her wallet. And Seren tells me that the person behind said, I'll pay for that. And she said, no, 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 it's fine. I'll, I'll go and get my wallet. And the guy said, no. 
thanks for all you do, because nurses are really important. I'm going to buy you a coffee. When we hear stories like that, but then we know that people in power can act differently, what do we do? I wonder if one of the answers could also be found in the Sermon on the Mount. This is chapter 7, verse 12, near the end of this sermon, and Jesus says these words. So in everything, do to others what you would have them to do to you, because this sums up the law and the prophets. Do to others what you would have them do to you, because this sums up the law and the prophets. Like another thing we often quote here, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. I think it's genius is in its simplicity. It is at the exact same time the simplest thing to understand, but the hardest thing to do consistently, isn't it? It is so basic, but it takes a lifetime of practice to get it right. Do to others what you would have them do to you. What does this mean practically? Well, I think it means love people love people. It makes all the difference. And not just emotionally, but physically. A few years ago, I read about something called the Ornish spectrum, which says that the more love and support you have, the lower your chances are of contracting heart disease. Love people. Now, let's be honest. I think we can be a bit rubbish, can't we, day to day at showing love. I grew up in a kind of pretty typical working class town, a place where men never said, I love you. It just wasn't part of our vocabulary. And I think probably I still struggle with saying those kind of words now. But, you know, of course you love your mates, don't you? Of course you do. A few years ago, I remember watching an interview with a guy called Guy Garvey, who's the lead singer of a band called Elbow. Um, he had written a song, and the last song on this album ended with the refrain, love you, mate, love you, mate, love you, mate. And he was being interviewed, and the interviewer said to him, what's that song all about? And he said, oh, it was one of my best friends. He died last year. And he said, the thing about this guy was that every time I would speak to him on the phone, he would end every conversation by saying, love you, mate. And the last time that I spoke to him before he died was on the phone. So I know that the last words that my best mate ever said to me were, love you, mate. And he said, I've been thinking about that and I've been reflecting on that for ages and I had to write a song about it. He said, because it's ridiculous, isn't it? He said, of course you love your mates. Of course you do. But we just don't say it often enough, do we? Love you, mate. Do to others what you would have them do to you. I think we need to love more and I think we need to love more explicitly. There's this famous Martin Luther King quote, darkness cannot drive out darkness, only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate, only love can do that. In response to those who grasp power, who will do anything to hold on to the power they have, I wonder if love in the face of hate is the most powerful response that we can give.
one more story, and then I'll end. This is Megan Phelps Roper. Some of you might have heard of her. She grew up in Westboro Baptist Church, which I'm sure some of you will have heard of. It's a cult, basically, in a small town in Kansas. It's not actually Baptist or a church, really. It was set up by Fred Phelps, who was Megan's grandfather, and the church became well-known around the world for their hatred. They would picket funerals standing with their signs shouting about how that person had died because they had sinned and they would be going to hell. Megan first picketed a funeral when she was five. Five years old. Her life was spent inside this cult. But then Westbra became aware of Twitter and thought this is the perfect mechanism to spread this message to the world. Megan was young, she kind of understood the tech, and she became responsible for the Westboro Baptist Twitter account. And she was good at it. Their following grew really quickly, and she would spend hours every day sitting at a computer, arguing with people who were threatening her, abusing her, swearing at her about all, all the awful things that Westboro stood for. But then there was one person who took a different approach. A man known as CG chatted to her, asked her questions about herself. They'd have long conversations, often while playing online Scrabble against each other. And slowly, over time, CG made Megan realize that she didn't actually believe the hateful things that her family had told her. Then there came a day where there was a terrorist attack which killed 77 people. The family were all together in the living room watching this on the news. And as they did so, when the death toll went up, the family cheered. God's judgment on a sinful world. Megan sat in a corner quietly, thinking about the devastated relatives of those 77. And she said, that was it. That was the moment I realized I was out. For me, I was about love and not hate. Eventually, she left the church. She left the family home, took her sister Grace with her, and they started a new life together. And now that's her doing a TED Talk. She speaks around anti-radicalization, how love can drive out hate across the world. Every day she had sat at her desk, replying to thousands of people who were responding to her hatred with more hate. The thing that actually made the difference, the thing that got her out of that spiral of hatred, was love. It was someone showing an interest in her. It was someone caring for her. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. Do to others what you would have them do to you. There is power in redemptive love. Loving your enemies, forgiving those who have wronged you. There is real power in that. The story of the Sermon on the Mount is that Jesus stood up and gave us this manifesto that there is a different way to live. 
and that we today can live a life of radical, revolutionary, redemptive love. So, just as we end, what do we do about this as a community together? Because again, I think with lots of this stuff, we can individualize it. But Jesus was standing on a hill talking to a group of people. Our response to this is individual, but it has to be as a community too. We've talked a lot already about this Waterloo Weekender, about how 13 years ago we wrote our 2020 vision, our manifesto for how we wanted this community to be. And we've talked about how in that weekend in June, we're going to come together to write our 2030 vision, our manifesto for this community over the next seven years. If we were to write our Sermon on the Mount for this area, what would go in it? You have heard it said, what? But I tell you, what? Blessed are who? For theirs is what? I think that's the task ahead of us in this next month. What would it be? We all know that housing in this area is absolutely terrible. It is a real difficult thing. Everything from the number of you lot who want to live around here but can't because the houses are incredibly expensive to the incredibly poor uh, state of some of the social housing in this area. Honestly, some of the stories I could tell you of some of the people we see day to day who live in awful conditions around here. Is that one of those things? Is that part of the manifesto? Or the stories I've heard this week about our immigration advice and the systems and the structures which mean that this person who has to live on an absolute bare minimum has to pay 200 pounds to a GP to get a letter that would take 30 seconds to prove something which means that their immigration status can change and you know, it kind of starts all these things moving. But this person hasn't got 200 quid. If they had 200 quid, they'd have to live on that for weeks and weeks and weeks. Is it systems and structures around those kind of things? What is it? What's our manifesto? I'm going to end just by reading this again. And then we're just going to have a couple of minutes just for us to think about that. What's our Sermon on the Mount? What's our manifesto? As we look at this community over those next seven years until 2030, what are the things that we want to change? And how are we going to do it?